0: Very clear to me that it was time to, to get out and move on. I still had a few years left in the military and I decided it's time to, to start writing. You had to be good at fighting. You had to be good at hunting. Otherwise, guess what? you were dead. Today, we're so far removed from that. Go to www.honey.com and then just follow the instructions. Like, I don't think so. It's it's more personal than that. You can't just look at a tweet and then that all of a sudden becomes the basis for your belief system. And use that experience, it can transition into wisdom as I move forward and find my next mission in life. This is Jack Carr, former Navy SEAL, current author, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I would rest at peace for eternity if my legacy was that I made a positive influence on the non-hunting public about what hunters are and what hunting is.
1: I finally got my buck on our last real day of hunting.
0: So a pro-hunting organization is voting against hunting. And that says anti-hunting to me.
1: There was a year straight where I was averaging up to 200 death threats a day. I hugged it like I just wanted to hug a bear.
0: It's proven that the average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 hands and machines. And we're putting that into our body. Hey
2: y'all, Cable Smith, host of the Lone Star Outdoors show here. This is Adam Weatherby. I'm Corey Jacobson with Elk 101.
0: This is Christy Titus. Hey
2: folks, this is John Bear.
0: You're listening to The Wild Initiative.
2: Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tacovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more.
1: All right, y'all. So getting on to today's episode, I'm super, super excited about this guest. Uh, Today, I have Jack Carr, author, hunter, former Navy SEAL uh, on the podcast with me. Y'all, I've been uh, obsessively reading uh, (laughs) his series lately. And so I'm hoping after the podcast he might give me a hint it was to come next, but we'll we'll find out about that later. Uh, um, but Jack, thanks so much for taking the time to hop on with me today.
0: Absolutely, thanks so much for having me on. I love uh, love talking books, love talking reading, love talking hunting. So uh, this is my type of podcast.
1: You know, I uh, I feel like this is one of those podcasts that I really have no idea where it's going to go because there's so many little routes we can take, and I'm hoping we hit a little bit of everything. So. So we'll see. But, you know, what I always like to start out with is, you know, and there's a a, a lot of ways we could go about this, but just kind of an introduction of, of generally who you are and, and what you do. But then also with that, how did you get introduced to the outdoors and hunting and, and fishing and all of this?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, best way to start is just for a little background is from the beginning, which is (laughs) I always wanted to serve my country in uniform. That's all I can ever remember wanting to do from a very early age. And uh, I think a lot of that comes from just knowing that my grandfather was killed in World War II. Uh, The day we're recording this actually is December 7th. And of course, 1941, that was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, And I just grew up with his medals and his uh, silk maps they used to give aviators back then. Because if you hit the water in your plane back then, you had a paper map, it would obviously you know disintegrate in the water, but a silk map would not. Um, I grew up with his wings, old black and white photos of his squadron. So very early on, I knew that was my path. And then also very early on, I found out about SEALs and what frogmen were and special operations and all that. did a lot of research. My mom was a librarian. So I grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading uh, and knew that, wow, one day, okay, SEAL guys sound pretty tough. And the training, it says in this book here, this article or this paragraph in, that I'm reading here at age seven, uh, says that there's uh, some of the toughest training ever designed by a modern military. So I'm in. So I was always on that path and then also because my mom was a librarian and i uh, loved reading i naturally gravitated towards fiction whose uh whose authors had protagonists that had backgrounds that i wanted to have in real life one day and typically back then in the 80s it was guys with vietnam experience either in the seal teams or in special forces or uh some sort of cia program something like that and so i just had such a great experience reading these novels that i knew that one day i would also Try my hand at that, and I'd write thrillers of the same genre that I was reading growing up. So I just uh, I just knew that those were the two things that I was going to do with my life. And then we're always just an outdoor family growing up. We didn't grow up hunting; I grew up shooting, but we uh, not necessarily hunting. And we had we'd go to the Sierras primarily in Northern California and spend a ton of time in the outdoors. And just any chance that I got, I was always headed outside. That was just life. In our family so uh, a lot of reading uh, and a lot of time spent outside and all that those things kind of kind of overlap because i love reading books about the outdoors love reading books about military um both fiction and non and that was my introduction to the outdoors was just through my parents getting us outside and then never that's never that's never wavered so all the, all the things that i was growing up uh i still am today you know all my all my friends from the you know, I have from from kindergarten on uh and i still have those friends to actually have friends from preschool still uh they're like yeah you've, <laughs> you're the exact same person now that you were in preschool which is it's kind of cool to be, i guess
1: that is wild i actually I, weirdly enough i had a uh an old preschool teacher that i i ran into and uh it I knew who it was and I was like, yeah, I mentioned it was, a, uh, I used to be one of your students. She full on remembered who I was out of the blue called me by name. Wow. I was, I was blown away. So apparently I guess I'm uh, pretty close to the same kid. I still use, I used to be, but that's awesome. So where, uh, you said, you mentioned your family's from Northern California.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in Northern California. Um, and just always, yeah, we grew up, uh, uh, just always going up into the, the Sierras and, and spend some time up there. What
1: what area, Northern California?
0: Uh, just North of north of San Francisco, up that, that area. Keep okay. Okay. California. Uh, um, I get you. I get you. So, so yeah, I grew up doing all that stuff and getting outside. We fished a lot, uh, as a family, but, uh, didn't really get into, I always knew I was, I was drawn toward hunting, but my dad just didn't, didn't hunt. We'd go to the range, we'd shoot, we had old 22s and thirty thirties and shotguns and stuff like that. But, um, But we never we never I always wanted to. And I was always jealous of my friends who were going hunting with their dads. I was always like, oh, man, I want to go do that. And we just didn't didn't do it as a family. Um, So really, I got into hunting. um, I mean, I was into it, but didn't do it until later on in life. And that was through sniper sustainment training at SEAL Team 5 uh, pre-September 11th. Uh, they wanted to get us into a place like we spent a lot of time in sniper school. You're on the range and then doing the stocking portions of the of the course as well. But uh, around that time, they really wanted to get us out hunting. They wanted okay. us to put bullets into things that were living and breathing. So we went to a place up in northern Washington state. Uh, I don't think they have really advertised that they do it up there. So I'll just keep it to northern Washington state, um, but a beautiful area up there. It was such an amazing experience. Um, so I got my first year up there, you know, we're hanging it, slicing off pieces, throwing it on the grill. And it, you know, it was just something I'd always wanted to do, but that was really my first experience doing it. And then I was, I was all in after that. And then, uh, we kept doing that, some cyber sustainment stuff through the military, uh, which was great. And uh, then my daughter just she's all naturally gravitated towards hunting without any kind of encouragement from me, other than having like the Outdoor Channel on when she was younger. And she's always she just gravitated towards uh, towards weapons and wanting to go outside and hunt. So I was of course like, yeah, let's do it. So uh, we became a, a hunting family, and we've got uh, you know, all the kids out there, and my wife, and um, we just yeah every year. This year we with this, this this year was crazy. We didn't get out this year, unfortunately, but, um, but we've gotten out every year multiple times, uh, over the past few years and pretty much all we eat is, uh, not all we eat, but primarily is wild game. And so it's great, especially for our daughter who's now 15, but she got her first deer at age seven and, uh, and she had a, quite, quite the experience, uh, bringing home deer and, uh, and elk, uh, she has two amazing, amazing elk, but to bring those back out. Obviously, and then talk about that experience and remember it together, particularly as a family or as a you know father daughter experience or a father son experience. Now with our littlest guy, so being able to take that out and toss it on the toss it on the grill and relive those experiences is uh, you know it's primal and it's visceral and it helps connect you as a as a family, not just to each other but to the the land and, and your meal as well. That's
1: what, that's one of the amazing things and definitely one of the more unique, uh, uncommon. Ways uh, I've had people come on the podcast and and tell me they've been introduced to hunting. Um, That is that is definitely a first, I believe. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's amazing. And, you know, we talk about introducing people to hunting a lot. And and, but you never know that one person that it's that it's really going to change. And then suddenly it becomes a lifestyle for them. You may just think like, oh, it's just this random person that I'm taking along with me on this hunt or whatever it may be. And it could, it could end up being that down the line, then their whole family, you know, that ends up being something that uh, turns into a passion and a tradition for them and their whole family. And it's just grows exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully something they pass
0: on to their kids and, and obviously it's not just the, the hunting, and the fishing, it's disconnecting today from all mm-hmm. these devices that uh that, that keep us plugged in, especially the, the kids. So being able to go places where there's no cell service and no Wi-Fi, and those places are obviously getting harder and harder to find. But typically where we go hunting, you don't have great service. Uh we also try to do a river rafting trip every year because in the base of these river canyons, guess what? No Wi-Fi, no cell service. Uh so there's no and it, and it goes for me too, not just for the kids. It's there's no even me looking at my phone saying, hey, hold on one second, I just gotta just gotta return this quick text to so hold on one second to the kids. That's not even option uh, because i'm so used to just being connected as i'm building you know it's essentially a small business uh in the publishing industry is uh, uh t- hold on one sec and i just <laughs> I do that so being able to be someplace where that's not even an option is uh is something that's very valuable to me and of course they're getting that that self-reliance piece though they're learning to be safe with firearms uh, they're learning a tradition that they can pass on to their kids and of course you know we know where the food is coming from what it's eating that we put on our table so um, so there's just so many benefits to it and yeah I feel very fortunate that we've been able to, to get out and run a, a lease down in the in Texas and uh, part owner of a uh, hunting operation in Hawaii uh, called Pineapple Brothers on Lanai which is Axis Deer and on Sheep um, so that's amazing to be able to go out there and that's a great family experience too because you know sometimes maybe my wife doesn't want to rough it so much uh, <laughs> and uh, she has that's for sure but she might prefer staying at the Four Seasons and being able to go to Nobu for dinner but also going out to hunt and uh and bring access to your home it's just such an amazing experience out there it's such a part of the, the culture and part of the island and so that's uh um, that's pretty cool to do as well
1: well you know it's uh it's it's really funny i didn't realize that you were a part of, i'm super familiar with pineapple brothers uh we took a family family trip to hawaii and uh this was back when i was working full-time and my my family's like okay you know we want to do this and so it's save your vacation time I'm like all right here's the deal though a vacation in Hawaii is a very different idea to me than it is to you guys. And there's some things I want to do. And they're like, Hey, as long as we can have dinner at some point, <laughs> do whatever you want. Uh, so I, I was very close and it, I ended up uh, just not being able to swing it at the time, but uh, I was very close to uh, doing some, some access deer hunting while I was out there on vacation. And it's still, yeah. still something I, I definitely want to do and, and want to take some time. I hear they, the meat, is just some of the best on earth. Like,
0: Yeah, no, it's incredible. And we have Bob the Butcher out there who's kind of like Rogan has turned into like a mini celebrity and uh, him and his wife run the, the Butcher kind of out of their house shop or out there anyway. It's such a cool experience, but each of the islands has, are so distinctly different which yeah. is what's amazing about Hawaii. So um, really I've only hunted Lanai, um, but I want to hunt the other islands and uh, having been to the other islands, I've been to Kauai, I've been to Maui and been to the big island and been to Oahu and all that. Um, they're just so distinctly different from one another, which is really which is really cool. And then easy to get to also, there's direct flights from uh, from Salt Lake, which is great because mm-hmm. we're in parts of the Utah now. And, uh, and then obviously from the West coast, there's other direct flights out there, probably something from Seattle, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, so it's an easy place for the West coast to get gets you. a little harder for the East coast to get out there, but uh West coast, man, and you can get some work done too. hop on that plane and start getting some, some <laughs> done. so it's a, it's a pretty cool experience.
1: It's, you know, Hawaii is one of those really unique places where it's, there's like opportunity year round and it's really not, it, it's not like you have to wait four years to draw the right tag and yeah. you can pretty much go out any time of year yep. and go hunt a bunch of different things you know whether it's wild goat or hog or you know uh, we did spearfishing out there there's super cool there's some amazing opportunities, and some fun stuff you just don't get anywhere else yeah no amazing yeah exotics. so it's all year long
0: and people ask me hey what's the what's the best time of year to go out there and it's so hard to say because you could go uh in the quote-unquote best time and have like just rain the whole entire time, you know, and then you can go at the worst time and have just beautiful weather. So it's, <laughs> so it's tough for you know to be able to say, and I've been there multiple times, all different months of the year, and it's just, it's, it's awesome all the time. You just never know what you're going to get out there. And that's part of it. You have to go in with, with that. If you go to Hawaii, you have to go in with it with that uh, kind of that expectation, with that understanding that, uh, you, that hey, you just don't know. About the weather, it's kind of it's just kind of how it goes. And then on Lanai, uh, which is the island I'm more familiar with now, is uh, that there's three distinct temperate zones there. So it's really really crazy. You know, the Serengeti type plain type thing where the axis really hang out, and then you get to these almost mountainous, really lush jungle type uh, type temperate zone uh, where the mouflon sheep are, and it's just a cool cool place to go in general.
1: I think it's definitely one of those things. I I feel like. If if you are a hunter and it's and it's your passion and it's kind of like what you obsess over, it's your thing. I, I definitely feel like a trip to Hawaii for Axis and and, yeah. and the sheep and and goat and and all of that. I feel like it has to be on your bucket list somewhere. You know, it's. Yeah. And you can bring your family, which
0: is great if they're if they're not hunters, uh, or if they they are just thinking about it. It's not a bad place to introduce them uh, to <laughs> hunting. But then they might get used to it. They might think that all hunting is done out of the four seasons, which is uh, is obviously not the case. <laughs> and uh, it was also cool is I can incorporate some of these trips into the research for my novels now. So I got to go to Kamchatka Peninsula because I knew that that, my third novel, Savage Son, uh, was going to have this part that took place in Kamchatka in Siberia. And I knew I had to put boots on the ground, even though I'd read a ton about it. uh, I just knew I had to put boots on the ground because you get so much more by doing that, that you can't research. You don't even know you need to research it if you're just doing it from your computer until you put your boots on the ground there. You talk to the people, you get some stories, you get that local flavor that you can weave in. So I did a uh, brown bear hunt over there, which was just crazy. Uh, and then for the second and and also the third as well, uh, I went to Mozambique and then down into South Africa later to help train up an anti-poaching unit with uh, Glocks and M4s. because I have some experience with those weapon systems uh, and they're protecting uh, some of the last rhino on earth down there. So I really wanted to get the tracking stuff from them, which was cool. So, uh, so it's, fun for me to be able to do that, uh, but also when I started down this path, hunting was very much at the forefront of my mind because I wanted someone, yeah, I want someone to pull that book from the shelf as they're walking through the airport and pass by Hudson News and see it, and maybe they heard about it from somebody or heard it on a podcast or whatever, or Maybe it's a, but they think they're grabbing a political thriller, they think they're grabbing like a spy-type novel, and what they are, they are pulling that, they are getting that off the shelf but they're also getting a little bit of an education in hunting and conservation because I weave those into the storyline, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly. Um, So I wanted to do that as well because I really hadn't seen that done before in the thriller space. Uh, if If it had been done, it was done by somebody that is interviewing a hunter uh, mm-hmm. a, a place. And then just like, uh, if you're interviewing a Navy SEAL sniper about it as an author, you're taking notes. Well, whatever that person is telling you, you're then filtering through your own life experience, uh, your own biases, uh, your own other, other research, uh, to then put it on into a fictional narrative. Uh, so for me, I don't have to interview that person because I can just remember what it was like going into Ramadi in 2006, like at the height of the war as a sniper. And I can take that experience and then apply that to a totally fictional narrative. But I think that's what made it stand out to Simon and Schuster, who sees thousands of these things every year is that it feels real. The emotions uh, that the protagonist is feeling feel raw, feel real because they are, because they come from a real place. It's not just me thinking about what it would be like, in some of these situations and how it would feel. It's my actual feelings and emotions applied to a fictional novel. So uh, I think that made it stand out to to Simon & Shoot Stranger readers as well, because I hear all the time um, how real and raw the experience of reading these novels is. So, uh, but that applies to the hunting space as well. My point is that being able to have gone to Africa, go to Mozambique, go to Kamchatka Peninsula, uh, wherever else, and then have that experience with the people with their their with the different traditions, hunting traditions in these different places, uh, I can then apply those to the novels. And it works in the same way as the the military experience does.
1: Well and that's one thing, you know, and that's that's perfect because I wanted to bring that up. And that's one thing I've really, really noticed throughout throughout all three books so far is uh it, Just that those little details here and there that you can, you can tell that you're like, oh yeah, no, he actually does this and has been there. You know, you'll mention a brand here and there and whether it's talking about uh, uh, the red, the specific red dot site you're using or the brand of camo, or I say you're using uh, that James James Reese is using. Uh, I was going to, I was going to say that was something else that I was going to ask you. I'm like, all right, how much, How much are you and James Reese? uh, How much crossover is there? And I I can only imagine, you know, he's a fictional character nonetheless, but there's a, you've got to have poured a lot of yourself into that character because it's based on so many experiences you've had.
0: Yeah, no, it's very, very personal. Um, And when the reader meets James Reese in the first novel, he's planning to come back from his last deployment and then get out and take care of his family because that's the last time he's going to tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. He's a prior enlisted Navy SEAL sniper, becomes an officer, and now he's in this leadership role where if he stays in, then yeah, he'll come back as a commanding officer at some point. But in today's military, you come back as a commanding officer, you're still leading, but you're leading from the tactical operations center. You're in management at that point. (laughs) You're a managing leader. Uh, You're not out there kicking doors with the guys. And the guys don't want you kicking doors with them at that point. You haven't done the workup. You don't know the SOPs. You're just stumbling around, getting in the way at that point. So you kind of age yourself out of doing what most of us came in to do in the military, uh, which is kick those doors and, and do those missions. Um, so it's a, it's a, there's a transition there. And for me, when I came back from my last deployment to Iraq, I knew that was the last time I was going to tactically lead guys on the battlefield. I was a prior enlisted SEAL sniper. Then I became an officer, and I was a task unit commander, which is an no 4 which is a lieutenant commander, which is for all the other services as a major. But if I stayed in, I was going to end up in one of those management positions and my family needed me. We have three kids and it's uh, it was time. very clear to me that it was time to, to get out and move on. Uh, I still had a few years left in the military, but I was going to uh, my last assignment as a short duty type thing. And I decided it's time to, to start writing. But that's the exact point where the reader meets James Reese. Uh, he drives 1988 Land Cruiser, which I also happen to drive I've <laughs> land cruisers. I had that same background. Uh, he's much better at jujitsu than I am. He's a much better boxer. He's a much better sniper. Uh, he's much faster and stronger and wittier of course. Uh, but, uh, so there is a lot of, you know, a lot of crossover. There a lot of things that I can, I can think back on or delve into to create the character, to, uh, build the character and same thing. That's why I use the, the gear. For. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people like it. Some people don't, but it's very natural for me to use gear because I'm a gear person. I was growing up. I uh, was in the military and I continue to be today. So it would be odd for me just to say that he had a gun in a holster. Like I just couldn't do it. I have to like, that tells a story. Like if I see you and you, you, we we meet in person and you walk in and I see what you're carrying. Oh, is it a Kydex or the Glock? Or is it, is it leather with 1911? Uh, You know, something like, there you (laughs) go. Nice. So all that stuff tells a, tells a story, you know, what kind of blade is in his pocket there? What does that tell me about him? Um, So all these little things are data points in real life. And so I use them as data points to develop my characters as well so um so yeah in the first i hear from a lot of hunters they read the first chapter in uh, what's really the uh the prologue to the terminal list my first novel and mm-hmm. they're like oh man sick of camo and uh you know all oh, that there's a rifle by me by this guy darcy eccles down here in in utah and uh they're like oh no way or they look it up and they're like oh my gosh it's a real thing so so it's kind of cool and also i grew up with uh with Jonathan Hart at SICA. so I got to be a part of that evolution of that company uh, from before day one, and just just watch how he came up with that idea. Of course, and of course, people have been talking about it forever, but he's the one that actually did it uh, and made hunting clothing technical. You didn't have to go to Cabela's and you know get a big. <laughs> Boxy thing that uh, you could use the same designers from Patagonia and Arcteryx and North Face at the time and all that sort of thing to to build out and really change the, the hunting industry. So I have a lot of respect and I did, I'm always uh, fascinated by people or companies that change industries regardless uh, because they take a risk or they have an idea or they develop an idea based on uh, their experience after that point, their knowledge after that point, um, and then share. That with the with other people with other businesses, so that it's, it's so anyway. So there's Sitka in every book <laughs> because of that. There's coffee in every book. Uh, that so there's a stuff that I like and enjoy that I weave into the storyline, uh, which is something that's very natural for me to do.
1: You know, it's I think the gear stuff too is it's one of those things that people can identify with too, and it, it it adds a little bit of excitement because. I mean, there's a lot of gear in the books. Like (laughs) he goes through a couple of guns here and there uh, (laughs) without giving away too much. Um, He goes through a a number of different uh, types of gear and, uh, and it just gives people an opportunity to connect with the character on a, on a different way. And, and, and it's right. Like you talk about the gear in a certain way and you say two different things, you know, you say something like, you know, he unsheaths his K-Bar, you know, and this is simplifying it. He unsheaths his K-Bar versus he flicks open his made. It, it gives you it tells you a completely different story. Mm-hmm. If you know what those two pieces of gear are, it tells you about the the man, what he's about to do like it. Yeah you know and i'm such a i'm such a have such a vivid imagination when i read i'm the guy that i'll get into a book and people will have full conversations with me and i won't even realize they're there yeah because I'm, I'm immersed like i you know I, there could be a war going on around me i would never know it yeah yeah very
0: cool yeah one of the things it'd be uh we're going back to hunting and and uh the kids and all that stuff so we uh we recently moved which is my for people that have just, uh, watch some podcasts some people for whatever that's backgrounds different because we're surrounded by boxes and insanity uh which means i, I left my smoker at the last house because the people that wanted to buy it they wanted it and thank goodness because it means i didn't have to carry it up this cliff uh, <laughs> level that was built into this like cliff thing it was crazy but uh so we got this thing called a birch barrel and you're in montana right now and i discovered this birch barrel thing at total archery challenge last year i you have, have one that,
1: i have <laughs> one out back
0: yeah. So I got mine right before Thanksgiving. You know, I set it up and I was like, uh, amazing. I, I set it up like I'm, sometimes I mess stuff up like that, uh, put stuff on back. Anyway, so I got that thing up, No problem. Awesome. The kids roasted some marshmallows. Uh, next morning, I made some breakfast on it, some eggs and sausages. And then Thanksgiving, like it was the first test, the first real test was Thanksgiving. And I was like, oh, man, I, I'm going to jack this up. Like, I mean, it's going to be totally dry. Like, I just don't see this working out. It was the best turkey we've ever had. Better than our fryer, better than our smoker, better than the oven. It was so awesome. And you could totally tell. And everybody could tell. And all of them thought I was going to mess it up, too. Everybody thought I was going to jack it up. <laughs> like, oh, we put this new contraption together. And we're doing it with fire. You're out there adjusting things. You know, you're adding wood. They're, you're totally messing this up. Nope. Boom. <laughs> Splayed the thing open with this... This thing, which is pretty sweet, I'm talking about here. This, I don't know how I've survived this long without an antique cleaver or a cleaver of any type. So this <laughs> one's made in the 1800s in Pennsylvania in the Golden Age of Steel by New West Knife Works, uh, and they make they do these refurbished cleavers which are awesome so i splayed that thing open with this and someone might meet their end with this in a future novel it was just so sick it's too good yeah so i did that and then threw it on the the birch barrel left it for an hour and 45 minutes and i was adjusting things of course and you know playing around with it best trick we've ever had awesome (laughs) i
1: I just had the greatest picture of james reese out back grilling when some assassination squad comes to and and that thing just going end over end, right into, right into somebody's, uh, you, might, you might take that thing,
0: you know, dump <laughs> or put somebody's head in it. Who knows? And all sorts of creative ways to uh,
1: uh, for people to meet their demise. <laughs> so wow. many creative ways to kill people. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, oh man. But you know, one of the, one of the things I, I did love uh, about the, the second novel is, and again, without really giving away any of the story because there's so many great, fantastic twists and turns throughout the whole book. And I'm, I'm such a sucker for these kind of novels because I love all those twists and turns, but uh, the conservation, you messaging you weave throughout the whole, especially it's really prevalent in the second, Mm -hmm. in the second novel, just because of, of where James Reese is and and what he's doing. And I'd like to quote uh, a section from the book here that I just really stuck out to me and, it's uh, talking about conservation and, and Rich and James are talking together. And he says uh, the general public in Europe and the States don't see the difference between what we do and what the poachers do without us here. The game would be gone. We're out there protecting it because it has value to our business. Sure. But we love this place and these animals we manage and conserve it for the next generation. The poachers on the other hand would wipe out the game in a year or two if we let them have their go. And then you talk about, they talk about what happened in Kenya and how hunting was banned and without hunters in the field, suddenly all the game loses its value and begins to disappear. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit, because it's such like this section of the book, I, you know, you can see here, I have it like <laughs> the whole chunk highlighted awesome. because it's so clearly and concisely explains what where people even in the hunting community don't understand about hunting in Africa, because I feel like that's the one, the one thing where you can get hunters head to head on is, is African big game hunting.
0: I know it's uh, it's tough sometimes. And that's always trying to, to weave that in through the characters through the development of the characters, but also educate the person reading it. Um, and it's uh, it's something that's that as important to me to do, uh, obviously. And people reach out all the time. They're like, they want to know more about this Hastings family. Cause they, <laughs> some of them move over. They're in all the books, but, uh, a little bit in the first one, much more in the second, uh, more in the third as well. So people want more of those characters, which is really cool for me to hear. Um, but uh spin-off we, novel, maybe, <laughs> maybe we, we shall, we shall see. But that second one was important for me also to take James Reese on a journey because he had to learn to live again. And um, because there's three books and a fourth coming out, it's not really a spoiler. Uh, it was in the beginning. If you were reading <laughs> the first book for the first time and there was no other books out there, like you didn't really know what was going to happen. But now if you like, find out (laughs) four or three, you know, and then go back to the first one. You kind of, you kind of know a little bit more than you would have when the book first came out in 2018. But I, my experience with transition was my military experience and not just mine, but watching people transition from the military, specifically special operations and even more specifically the SEAL teams and try to leave that life behind and start again in the private sector or continue moving, but do so out of the military and into the private sector. And I saw so many people have a hard time doing that. Uh, And that's because I think anyway, that they wanted to recreate kind of that's those same feelings that they had in the SEAL teams on the outside. And you're just not going to have, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, You're not gonna be able to be shoulder to shoulder with your best friends in the world who are also your teammates, who are also trained to this very high level, who have a mission to go and capture or kill someone downrange. You don't have to worry about the bills. You don't have to worry uh, about getting the kids to school on time or changing a diaper or fixing a leaky faucet. None of that. You are only focused on the task at hand, uh, downrange where your adversary wants to kill you. Um, So on the outside, You're just not going to find that. So you have to accept that as you make these transitions that, Hey, this next transition, uh, this next chapter in life, is not going to be the same. I'm not going to have those same feelings, but you know, what's important is I can build off the experience, whether it was good or bad uh, in the military and I can move forward. I can use that experience. It can transition into wisdom as I move forward and find my next mission in life, find my next passion in life. So I took all that and applied it to my character, James Reese, who, thinks that he's dying and he needs to find that next mission in life, that next purpose in life. And he does so in Africa because he's going off the grid and needs to find some place where essentially where he thinks he's going to die. Um, And this is a place that he knows of. That's about as far off the grid as he can possibly imagine. Thinks he's going to die on the way there and uh, gets there. But throughout that journey, and then once he sets foot in Africa, he finds this next mission, this next passion, and he can use what he learned in the military to combat the poaching problem in Africa. So he takes those lessons learned from Iraq and Afghanistan and applies them to the poaching problem in Africa. So, uh, so all that's, that's woven in, but it was very important, for, uh, at, in my evolution as an author to not just take what was successful in the first book and plop it down in another country. Like, Oh, mission of revenge, uh, very cut and dry. I'm going to take that and I'm going to apply it, put it in Europe to put it in Africa. I'm going to put it in China. Um, and I'm just going to morph things a little bit because it worked the first time. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to just be looked at as like a one trick pony. I really wanted to evolve, really wanted the character to evolve, to go on this journey and really get him to a place where then I could write about what I write about in Savage Sun, my third novel, because that's the one I wanted to write first. But I knew that the characters weren't developed enough to get to that place where I could explore that theme of uh, <laughs> the dark side of man to the dynamic of Hunter and hunted. That's what I wanted to do. But I knew I couldn't come out of the gate with it. I had to come out of the gate with the terminal list, hard hitting, visceral, primal, uh, and, frankly, I, one I thought was most likely to get noticed by a New York publishing house. And then I knew that at the end of that novel, not quite ready yet for what happens in Savage Son. The character needs to evolve. He needs to learn to live again, needs to find that mission. And so that's a little little longer, first part of the journey in that one. As that's where a lot of that conservation and Africa hunting stuff takes place. Uh, but then he gets to apply that to hunting down people and terrorists. But uh, then at the end of that one, I knew that James Reese was ready he was involved you know, enough as a character. I brought the readers far enough along where they'd be interested in this next novel, Savage Sun, which really I was inspired to write in the sixth grade when I read The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, which most hunters have either heard of or read. Um, and it's just a great short story. You can read it in like 30 minutes. Um, but uh, really it's a, it, the third novel, Savage Sun, pays tribute to uh, Richard Connell's Most Dangerous Game uh, that I read all those years ago.
1: I really feel like, you know, we uh, I was I was talking about this and how we we have different campaigns that explain what is so important, not only to us about hunting, but to wildlife as well. And uh, I've, I've talked about this in podcasts before, but it's tough because one of the problems we always have is we're always just preaching to each other, you know, we're 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 standing, we're standing in front of the mirror or we're standing in front of the choir and preaching, preaching, you know, what we're hearing right back at us. And it just, it's not beneficial. And so I think guys like you, men and women like you that have an audience, it's going to be wider reaching and yeah. Okay. The, you never know, but the, let's just face it. The, the liberal leftist vegan is probably not going to pick up a copy of the terminal list. Maybe, maybe they're they're they see it in the airport lobby and just need a book, but it, you know, there is going to be a somewhat of an audience that's going to pick this up and they're going to probably be more open to it. But having someone like you that weaves a message like that in a very non preachy it's not preachy, it's not loud and obnoxious, it's it's so subtle. It's almost like kind of it's almost subliminal in that messaging. You don't even realize that you're <laughs> you're getting an education on conservation.
0: That was the goal it Was like what a little I could do um, to kind of help the cause or to educate people on some things that they become much too far removed from. Um, and I talk about that in the preface to, to Savage Sun. is that, you know, for only this slimmest portion of human history, have we been able to not have to be good at fighting to defend our families, to defend ourselves, to defend the, the tribe, the community neighborhood? Um, and have we not had to be good at hunting or we could just go down to the store? I mean, it's, it's such a small portion of human history. So it's important for me to, to explore that part as well. Um, but I think so many people are disconnected from the land, disconnected from where their, their food comes from, uh, disconnected from the skills that uh, that their forefathers had to have had because if they didn't, they would not be here today. Like you had to be good at fighting, you had to be good at hunting. Otherwise, guess what? You were dead. Uh, so somebody in everyone's line was good at these things, or maybe they were very good at making alliances, you know, and they, they were good at uh, at the cooking piece or something. But uh, regardless, today we're so far removed from that. So, uh, but I think there's still that spark. In everybody just like like that theme of revenge for the first novel i chose that one because i loved reading books about revenge growing up i love movies about revenge people are just naturally drawn to that theme um, for whatever reason but it's such a primal notion and a primal thing to explore uh if you're wronged if you are attacked back at the beginning of time, you know what you did? Oh, well, you went out and you killed that person um, and to make sure they wouldn't attack you again or whatever, whatever it may be. So there's something in all of us that that connects with same thing with hunting. Uh, and, and so I think even though people don't realize it, maybe as they're reading through these things, if they've never hunted before uh, they've never taken a jujitsu class and never picked up a weapon. Um, but there's something in them that it, it, it's just so primal that connects them to that storyline that connects them to the fight that connects them to the hunt um and i think there's really something something to that uh and to have gone down range in the seal teams and to uh to be a hunter um and being able to take those and apply them to these novels i think there's something there's something to it I and mean, i can't I'm not certain obviously but i think i think that there is and uh i love exploring all those themes. So there'll be common themes that find their way into the rest of the novels as well, because it would—it's just very natural for me to incorporate that because it's something I'm always thinking about. as something that's such a, a part of me and my family um, that for me not to incorporate those sorts of things would just be
1: strange. It's you know, there's there's one more quote that I'd, I'd love to share from the book uh, because it's so it again it's so concisely just shares I think how. Many of us feel uh, about hunting and, you know, again, from from True Believer, Reese is out with uh, the the guides and they came across uh, an animal that some poachers had had snared and Reese uh, Reese just took a shot and took down the animal. And it says, uh, though, putting a finger to trigger or knocking an arrow and bringing a bow to full draw was the culmination of one's training and preparation. It wasn't something Reese celebrated instead after sending a bullet or releasing an arrow he'd approach the animal quietly kneel to place his hand on the creature he'd taken to provide for his family he respected the wild others much more than he than the men he'd put in the ground it is it's one of those amazing things to where yeah there's excitement in the hunt there's there's joy in being in the outdoors and providing for your family but i mean i think you know, even Fred bear, like the father of bow hunting talked about it. There's, there's joy and there's sorrow with that. You've taken a life and, uh, there's respect as well. That's involved in that. And that brings across the message so well. And it, and it really, again, it just concisely explains to people and, and they read that. And I hope as people read these books, They begin to associate that sort of attitude more more so than the drunken kind of redneck behavior that people think of from the movies when they think of hunting, because I feel like that better encompasses more of what the hunting community is about. Uh. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, and
0: that's how I feel. Obviously, that's the the character that I'm most closely you know associated with uh, as I write these things, and what I what I apply my experience to um, is really is is his background and his thought process and his training and um, his mindset. But uh, for me, getting out there and when I do that, when I'm with other people or with a, an outfitter or something, and I you know I take that shot. And sometimes, I think they sometimes think it's strange that I don't all of a sudden just like, yeah, start celebrating uh, when, it, when it drops. Uh, so I'm very, and I've always been that way. Um, it's my first shot on an animal. Take, take that shot, boom, get that other, get another round in there. You know, maybe you need a follow up. Maybe you don't, but you're ready. Okay. And then when I approach it, it's very strange. I don't think I've ever talked about this on a podcast before, but I approach it like I do a human um, in that I want to be out of their line of sight and approach it, approach the person from that direction, just so they're not, you're not sure you're gathering information as you approach that person. If, you're, if they're facing you, you, gotta move offline uh, so they can't see me as I approach, um, that sort of thing. If the person's just wounded or whatever else, uh, yeah, maybe you maybe have a partner that's holding and they're, that focuses on them and then you're coming around to do the cuffing and prisoner control and that sort of thing. But uh, the same thing with an animal. You know, I approach that, I'm ready to go. Uh, that round is in there take my scope, dial it back to, you know, to, to one or whatever uh, and uh, whatever it may be. And then I walk in and just quietly walk in out of that, that line of sight and to go about it from there. So it's, uh, uh, you know, the celebratory jumping up and down, it's just not my, not that it's nothing wrong with it, but it's, uh, it's just not, you know, what I, what I do. Um, I get up there and, and, uh, and then start, Doing the job, the rest of the job, but um, uh, and that was very natural for me to write about that for my protagonist as well.
1: It's you know, and and like you said, there's I don't think there's anything wrong with with people that do celebrate. I'm not say you know neither of us are trying to say that that's a bad thing. Everyone has a different. I mean, it's a very visceral thing that just yeah. happened, like. And for some people, that's their release. Like I know, you know, uh, that second it happened, you know, you you don't realize how much tension and pressure is built up, you know, in your body and your mind and all of that. And it, it just releases. And for some people, it's a cheer. For other people, it's just like a sigh and a yeah. You know, everything kind of focuses inward, but
0: um, yeah, it's a very personal, very personal thing. Um, that's just mine, that's just my way. It's always been, I didn't think about it beforehand. You know, I never never thought about uh, after I press this trigger, how am I gonna feel or whatever any of that sort of thing. It's just naturally what happened, so it's natural for me to then write about it uh, through my protagonist's eyes as well. Um, nothing wrong with you. Everybody's gonna have a different type of uh, reaction to uh, and, and if, if you wound an animal, it runs off, you know, it's a little different than if it just drops right away. And if it just drops right away and you start celebrating and then all of a sudden it pops up and runs off. Well, then that's a different experience. And that's a different <laughs> thing. that's a different lesson. So there's all sorts of things and ways, uh, you know, that you can go about uh, uh, doing and feeling about these things. Um, and that's just, you know, just just my way. It's very natural for me to, to, to write about it through my protagonist's eyes.
1: So, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a lot of people wanting to learn a lot more about the Hastings family. And uh, and it, I, I do. I would actually I would absolutely read uh, read a spinoff book about the Hastings. Just throwing that out there, you know, especially because uh, I, I picked up the uh, three sips of gin or two yeah, sips of a, gin. Uh, yeah. Three sips of gin. I, I picked that up and it's actually I just started reading it uh, about two days ago. Um, Man. so that's, that's the next, and I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, I want, I want Jack to write a novel about this, like uh, about this.
0: <laughs> it all the time. It's so, it's so wild. And, uh, what's so cool about that is that, um, in the third novel in Savage Sun, there's a, a part where there's an attack on a, on a, uh, a ranch in Montana. And, uh, Caroline Hastings is the matriarch. Oh, the-
1: that was so badass! I just gotta <laughs> say, you guys, you gotta read the series. But that was like the most, probably one of the most badass <laughs> moments of the book was her. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and I got,
0: and so it's based on a real person with a real last name of Hastings, and I, yeah, I thank her in the acknowledgments, and she's just awesome lives in Montana um, and uh, she lent me a bunch of books uh, she grew up in Rhodesia just like the character uh, came to the United States this is Montana uh, hunter and uh, she lent me a bunch of books that uh, you can't really get in the States and uh, they were amazing and I was going through these books as research and I found this one story that has a matriarch of a family the husband is off in the Bush Wars um, in that doing doing their thing in Rhodesia back in the day and they're they're under their family farmers under attack. And the matriarch has this one line that she says to her daughter. Um, and I took that line and I put it in the book. I morphed it a tiny bit, but I put it in the, the novel. And I thought someone was going to call me out on it and be like, uh, and so I took a picture of that passage from this, this book, from this history of Rhodesia. And I, so I took a picture of it. It's on my phone. And uh, I thought someone was going to call me. out and be like, yeah, no one's that tough. No one would ever say something like that, huh. but it's true. It's an oral history of Rhodesia. And, uh, and it was just it was just so powerful when I read it. I knew I had to incorporate it, and I and I had to incorporate it into this character of Carolyn Hastings, Caroline Hastings in the in the novel. Uh, but it's just so powerful. One, I think it's probably one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines from *Savage Son*. If I have to pick one, is that uh, line? I won't say what it is here, but it's yeah. just it's so powerful. Um, it just took me aback when I read it. I read it over and over and over again, and I applied it to the novel, and it's just it's just hard.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. That that whole, I had to go back and re, keep rereading sections of it because it's so, I kept reading it so stinking fast that I was missing details because it's just so that whole like chapter of the book, you're just like, oh my gosh, what's going on right now? What's going on right now? You're, you're like trying, I'm trying to read the whole thing, but I'm like rushing through it because it's so just fast paced and action packed and everything's gnarly. Um, I mean I I say that in pretty much the entire all three books (laughs) there's not many slow sections in them (laughs) but uh, yeah I kept having to that that section of the book I just I probably had to reread three times just uh, just to make sure I caught everything but it was absolutely fantastic I'm I'm like Mm -hmm. I can't I can't keep reading about the Hastings Ranch though because I'm just living in Montana that's (laughs) it I mean come on
0: (laughs) No, it's so sweet. I need one of those places one day as well. But uh, yeah, jumping back to the, the education piece, actually. So when I went to Mozambique, um, I, was, uh, I didn't have a book deal, didn't have an agent. Uh, I knew I was going to write two books, though. Uh, and because I knew cause John Grisham, first he wrote A Time to Kill, and he couldn't give that book away. And then he writes The Firm. And the firm's the one that takes off. And then we have a book by John Grisham every year since. And then they went back and published Time to Kill, which I think is arguably his best work. Um, and with me, anyway, it resonates the most with, with me. Um, so I always knew I was going to write two. And if both didn't work out, didn't find an audience, didn't get published, then I was going to reevaluate my life choices. But I'm always going to do two. <laughs> So I went to, so this is 2016. So I just retired from the military, jumped on a plane to Mozambique and uh, had a whole bunch of questions typed out that I wanted to ask over there, a bunch of different, he had to translate this into this language and this language and this language just to make sure I got that part right. Uh, questions about, hey, make sure you take notes on the soil and the rocks and the plants and all this stuff. And I got much more that I didn't have on that list than I did after I went went over there but point being 2016 so we're not that far removed from the big lion controversy that uh you know i forget what year it was but anyway there's something you can import lions back into the states so i get over there and my ph my professional hunter shows me a bunch of pictures of what dead lions poisoned lions uh watering holes snared lions because guess what they have no value. Not only do they have no value, it's also, it's a negative because they're killing livestock. Uh, they can kill people. They can kill, you know, husbands, wives, wives, kids, whatever. Um, and over there, your, your walls aren't the same as they are. Here. <laughs> um, Yet we have people. And of course, I mean, this, uh, uh, not just in New York and LA, um, coffee houses, uh, it's just an example of congratulating, themselves but how they're saving the African lion because now these evil hunters can't import them into the States. Well, guess what you guys just did? You just killed all the lions, not just the old male lions, which are the ones that you're going out there to go after the ones that are done doing what they need to do. You have, you're killing the babies, you're killing males, you're killing females. That doesn't matter. Indiscriminate killing of lions because not only is there just, just no value. It's also, doing damage by taking away those things that provide for your family, your livestock and people. So, um, so people just don't think about that sort of thing. So I try to weave that, that in, bring a little awareness to it when it comes up, you know, naturally in an in interview or something. It's not something I shy, shy away from talking about because I experienced it. And, you know, if these people really wanted to, to save African wildlife, they should go over there um, and not just go around and take a couple pictures and go home. That's a different experience than really being a part of the food chain uh being out there putting boots on the ground walking being part of that hunt Uh, it's a different deal or going over there with someone that's doing that and talking to the people that are preserving the last, Some of the last, in the case of when I went back to South Africa, some of the last rhino on earth down there. Uh, and a lot of that's done with private donations um, and by um, private branches, that sort of thing. So uh, it's just interesting to not just read an article about it and then kind of rearticulate that maybe in your own words about why the ban on bringing lions back is hurting African wildlife a little different to go over there to see the pictures and I have them I have them on my phone I haven't posted them or anything but uh I just kind of need to figure out the most appropriate way to do that but they're just dead lions by poison watering holes um the reason for that is because there's no value and not just no value but they're also doing bringing a negative impact to the families that actually live over there and don't uh don't call an exterminator every time they find a cockroach in their apartment. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. I think, I think that's the one thing to note. It's not just that. Yeah. Okay. Hunting adds value to the wildlife. It's a, not only does it add value, it helps manage that wildlife that would otherwise be just exterminated as a nuisance. Um, I mean, you know, not to, uh, not to stereotype, but at all, but the people advocating, uh, spending the most time advocating for the quote unquote protection of African wildlife looks surprisingly like me and you maybe without the beards, but, uh, <laughs> maybe, with, maybe with curly mustaches or something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, probably spend a lot of time in Los Angeles coffee shops, um, yeah
0: congratulating themselves yeah it's a, it's an interesting thing to I, I guess be so associated with maybe an ideology or a belief system that makes you must avoid some of the facts or just not be able to process them in a way that is that is logical so you're congratulating yourself for something when you, in fact you've done the exact opposite of your intended purpose and your intended goal your intended mission you've done the exact 180 out you've killed more lions then you saved um, way more, and you haven't saved any. So it's it's yes, and, and it's an interesting thing. So it's uh, but you know, you really have to be interested in these things. Just like with anything in life, you have to explore it. You have to read about it. You have to research it. You have to go there. You have to talk to people. Um, you know, you can't just look at a tweet of how many characters you can put it in a tweet two hundred, whatever it is, uh, and then that it all of a sudden becomes the basis for your belief system because someone tweeted out something about you know, killing African wildlife. And then that is it. You have 200, and 200 plus words and that is all characters, <laughs> not words, sorry, characters. Uh, and that is your belief system for an entire species or uh, an entire program uh, designed to preserve wildlife on the planet. So it's it's crazy. And you, you really need to do the research and you really need to go there. You really need to ask the right questions um, and, uh, or ask any questions. And then come up and figure out if, uh, if really that band that you supported or that you championed, uh, that you retweeted about, um, actually served its intended purpose or if it did the exact opposite.
1: Do you have any, any resources you would recommend to someone that, uh, other than actually going out and seeing it for yourself firsthand, uh, any, any resources or places to look for, for information about this?
0: Gosh, you know, I don't have like one single um, place that I go to, to research these things. Um, So I don't have a certain place like that. Um, Maybe some of the different organizations that have a goal of preserving African wildlife, go check some of some of those websites and read some of what they have to say. But uh, for me, I really do research really across the board, particularly as an author. Um, I need to make sure that what I'm putting in the novels is factually correct. Because People will call you out on it when you say pavement and they say, no, that's asphalt or whatever. Like, people will, <laughs> will, will find these things like that um, because everybody uh, has a different area of expertise And me as an author. That my area of expertise isn't different types of you know, pavement and cement and asphalt or whatever. Um, but I need to look into those things uh, to do that research. So that applies to anything. Really, whether it's something that, quote unquote, small or something very large the like history of a terrorist organization or some of these impacts of, of hunting or that, whatever it might be. Um, so I think it's, it's important to go out there and do that research, immerse yourself in whatever it is that whatever topic it is uh, before you jump to a conclusion based off someone else who also did no research other than retweet somebody else's 200 character tweet so i think it's important to immerse yourself in whatever it is that you want to have an informed opinion about um, process it sleep on it think about it apply your experience to it uh, and then maybe talk about it uh, so and as an author i'm very fortunate that i have this time to research these novels um oftentimes in interviews or if i'm posting about something i don't have as much time but i try to put as much thought into every single post as i do into the novel. If there's anything that I do, uh, I try to put like, the requisite thought into it and uh, take that, put that requisite time into it. Um, so, because I think it's important for my readers to know that, uh, yeah, they can trust when I'm, they can trust that I've done that, uh, regardless of what my opinion is on something. What I'm writing is that they know that I didn't just uh, hear it from one person and then then say it again real quick it's you no. Know, I thought about these things I researched these things um, I got to think about them as I continued to write get to do some more research as additional questions came up and then for the most part I try to go to the places that I write about talk to the people that are there uh, and then apply those stories apply that local flavor to the novels as well which also then becomes part of, uh, of our shared experience.
1: So we got some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, new novels going to be coming yes. out as well as uh, James Reese is, is being brought even more to life. Yeah. Um, so we got, we got the, we got the new novel. What's the, what's the title of the new novel? Yeah,
0: the devil's hand. So that comes out. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a little card actually that has, it looks like that the devil's hand. So it comes out April 13th and finished that the first round of edits. Um, So this is what is today, Monday. So on Friday, well, actually Saturday morning at three in the morning, I finished the, uh, because that's the only time it's quiet around here. (laughs) Uh, We have three kids and a dog and, you know, christmas holiday coming up it's just insane so it's uh it's mass chaos at all times so the only time it's really quiet is between maybe 10 10 30 11 and 3 in the morning so finished up uh, the first round of edits here uh, a couple days ago and the next thing i do is i print it out and i take a breath and then i come back to it trying to read it through the eyes of someone who's experiencing it for the first time who hasn't been intimately involved with its creation over the last year it, year plus. Uh, And that's that's the part that's really the challenge for me because I'm so intimately involved in it. And this one really explores something I've thought about for years and years and years during my time in the military, um, which was, hey, what is the enemy learning from us while they're watching us in Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, So what uh, what are terrorist organizations learning? What are super empowered individuals learning? Uh, What's Russia learning? What's China learning? What's North Korea learning? What's Iran learning? Uh, Of course, they're a little more closely associated with us by what they've done through proxies from the early eighties up through today. But what are they learning? Essentially watching two football teams play and watching them, watching them for 20 years and then putting your team on the field uh, in opposition to someone that you've seen uh, studied for all these years, watched how they've adapted over that time. So I really wanted to explore that. And I did that through the medium of uh, of biological weapons. So I was doing a lot of research on bioweapons really from, the end of World War II up through today, uh, what happened to what the Japanese used in World War II, what they studied in World War II, what happened to their research at the end of the war? Um, What happened to the German research at the end of the war? What did the Soviets do at the early days of the Cold War up through their dissolution? And then what happened to all that information, all that research, all those doctors? Uh, What have we done? Um, How have these uh, biochem weapons treaties played in to that? Uh, So I was exploring all that sort of thing. Uh, and that's the, that's the devil's hand. So that's uh, <laughs> to get that one, that one out there, but I'll, but so if you hadn't spent the last year researching these things and then applying our response to COVID uh, to that storyline as well, uh, like if you hadn't been in so focused on that research and writing this novel, what would it read like to you? So I'm trying to to I'll try to look at it through the eyes of someone who's experiencing it for the first time here, make my edits, take another step back, probably print it again, read it through one more time, and then done. And it's time to move on to book five.
1: I mean, you know, if, if you need any assistance or, or feedback, I'm just you saying. <laughs> Thank you. you. Um, Like I said, I'm a little bit anxious. Um. yeah,
0: Yeah, I'm super excited to get this out here. And then my mind's already, as I get close to the end of one novel, I start thinking about the next one because I have to leave it in a way that keeps the aperture open or the door open for the reader wanting to know what happens next even though it's a might be a year away. Uh so I think start thinking about that next one. What's gonna be that theme? What's gonna what what's James Reese gonna need, how's he gonna need to evolve in that next one? What's the so I start thinking about that a lot as I get to the end. and uh, now I know where this next fifth one's going. So I'm excited to jump into that one too, but probably before I do most of my effort over the next week, we'll be on the last couple of scripts for uh, the Terminalist List series, which uh, uh, will start with Chris Pratt, It'll be on Amazon, Insight is directing, who's amazing, did Training Day, Tears of the Sun, Equalizer, Magnificent Seven, such a great guy. Um, so uh, my next, I don't know, I don't guess the efforts over the next few days will be tightening up those, those scripts, and then we'll start filming here in 2021. So we shall see.
1: That's that's super exciting. I cannot wait. When I saw when I saw you kind of first mentioning that on on social, I was I was pumped to see that that's going to be coming to Amazon. I think that'll be just absolutely fantastic to watch. Um, Eight part
0: series, uh, and I'm really excited with the way they're because it's a different way to tell a different way to tell a story, different medium, uh, the written page, different than watching it on a screen. So it's a, I'm learning a ton uh, about screenwriting, about telling stories through that visual medium. And I'm really excited about the direction. It's like It has to be a little different um, in order to just because it's a different medium. So uh, I'm really excited about the direction that it's that it's taken. And it's just it's just awesome. That's going to crush.
1: Will we will we be getting a lot of that that hunting and conservation messaging even in the, the Amazon series as well?
0: Not as much as in the books. That's for, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, you have such a limited amount of time for me in a book. I can be, if I want to get to me in a paragraph and I'm like, oh, you know, what? I want to explore that a little more. Guess what I do? I write another paragraph. Uh, <laughs> but when you're doing these scripts, you have a certain amount of time that they have to fit. Uh, and you have a budget. Uh, so for me, I can write about anything. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't need to think about a budget as far as, uh, what, man, if we're going to destroy a building like that, is that going to be expensive? Uh, I don't have to think about that at all. I just put it in there. Uh, <laughs> In, in L.A., especially now with all these COVID restrictions, if you're thinking about doing a scene that has a huge crowd, well, that is a uh, significant consideration for the budget. So okay. as you're writing these things, you have to think about that. If you have a eight-part series that takes place in a crowded mall, well, that's going to be uh, probably not going to happen. You're probably going to morph your storyline a little bit. So it's interesting how COVID has really crept into all aspects of our life, not just the uh, the health side, worried about relatives and whatever else, businesses closing and all the rest of it. I mean, it's affected every single part of our lives and really it's changed the course of history. But in this specific instance, um, yeah, it's changed storylines. It's changed probably almost all storylines in Hollywood over the next few years, because you just have to take that into account. If you have a, a, now if you have, if you're doing something like Castaway uh, or whatever, you're (laughs) going to have a little different, like you're good, you're fine. Uh, But if you have any scenes and crowds, well, you have to really think about that and consider what that means. And if how important is it to the storyline? And can we tell that same story another way?
1: And, and let's face it, I, however much I'd enjoy it, I don't think uh, the public at large is going to enjoy a half an hour, hour long episode about. uh, There's some stuff in there, yeah. No,
0: you'll you'll notice (laughs) some stuff. You should notice some some gear. And of course, this is my first rodeo as far as this stuff goes. I'm learning a ton. Uh, It's been awesome so far. The the team they put together is amazing. Uh, But I'll be curious as we get as I go through it, I'll learn so much more. And I'm typically a sponge. I always felt in the SEAL teams, like I was a new guy, even at the end of 20 years, uh, So I was always learning. Um, and I'm always learning here too. So we will be very curious to see about, you know, the weapons and the gear and how you source that sort of thing. And, you know, whose prop house uses what, and who's technical advisor likes what or whatever. So it'll be very interesting to see that dynamic as we start adding people. Cause at first it was just me and the screenwriter, uh, Chris Pratt and Todd Fuqua. So me and the screenwriter putting together the first episode and then Chris Pratt, Antoine Fuqua and the screenwriter going to sell it to Amazon, going to Netflix, going to Disney, going to HBO, all those. And then there was like a bidding war or whatever, and Amazon got it. Um, so after that, they put together a writing room. So now you have like 15 people coming together to, to work on the next series of scripts. Um, and they do their job for a certain amount of time, and then they go on to the next project. So now it's back to me the screenwriter, uh, Pratt and director. Um, And then now they're starting to cast. And then they'll start thinking about locations. Then they'll start thinking about all that that gear and the prop houses and scheduling and all the other things that go, all the logistics that go into making a movie or making a series or whatever it might be. That's a lot of people. When I sit down to write a book, It's just me. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see because every time, any time you add more than one person to anything, now you have a political consideration. You have early, uh, to to consider. And then when you add a hundred people, 200 people, 300 people, a thousand people, and you're juggling all those different personalities and all the rest of it, it it could get a little interesting. So I'm uh, very curious to see how that plays out over the next year.
1: Well, so as we're winding down here, uh, one thing I was like to kind of finish up with is you know say say somebody was reading the novel, you know, and they they're reading about the Hastings ranch in montana and and elk stocks or mule deer stocks and all all this stuff, and they're like, "Holy crap, man, like this is it like I've always wanted to do this like hunting, but I don't have any background in it. I don't know anybody that does it. you know, my only experience with hunting in the outdoors is reading about. James Reese and Rafe Hastings. Yeah. So maybe you hear about someone like that. What, what words of advice would you give someone that wants to get into hunting, but maybe is kind of intimidated by it. They don't know how to even start.
0: Yeah. So it's, it is a tough cause it can be intimidating, especially if you don't know anybody. You don't, there's no one you can personally reach out to and be like, Hey, you hunt, right? how do I get into this thing? Like, I really want to provide for my family, but I I didn't grow up with firearms. I'm not sure. I heard you have to get a tag or something and you have to like wait 10 years or (laughs) (laughs) there's all these questions for the person that is just starting down that road. Um, And so I totally get it. It can be totally confusing. Um, But I think it's always important to remember that, or they get online and they see all this gear and then they look up, how much is that bow? Oh man. Uh, How much is that rifle? Oh, that's, that's really expensive. So yeah. We have to remember that back before the internet, back before social media, you know, people went out with a hand-me-down 30-30 or 30-06 for the two rifles that have killed more deer, been used to kill more deer in this country than any other two calibers that have been handed down to them. They went out in jeans, cotton socks, work boots, and a red flannel, like, and they went and they got it done, you know, in the winter, in blizzards. So it's important to also be like, okay, we did it like that we got it done like that maybe i don't need a ten thousand dollar uh rifle scope setup and this crazy amount of technical hunting gear and then pay this private land owner this crazy amount to go on and work. so yeah you can go that route but you don't have to uh and that's typically what you see when you log on and your your I mean, social media uh, is an interesting animal but uh it can also discourage people can encourage you and inspire you. Yep. But then you can look at some of these things that people are doing be like, Oh man, that's, that's crazy. How am I going to ever do that? So it depends on your resources, just like anything else in life Um, you can do it with almost next to nothing. And the best way I, and this is what I do. I don't know if this is right or not. i am be curious what you have to say. Um, What I typically say when I get that question is that, Hey, like do your research and find a local hunting club. Where do you start local bow shop? uh, local, uh, range, uh, shooting range, gun store type thing. And they go in there they talk to those people in there, particularly in the boat shop, but find a time when they're not too busy. Uh, you know, if you ask them, they're not going to be too busy. When you can go in and, and, uh, and hang out and talk a little bit, uh, definitely buy something, um, from those guys. Cause it's, it's a, it's a small business. Um, maybe it's just a t-shirt or a hat, whatever you're just getting started. But, uh, I, Join a local hunting club. doesn't have to be like one of these huge big ones or one of these very elite ones or anything like that. Um, some sort of local hunting club or like a 3D uh, target place. And by doing that, you'll start to talk to people. You'll start to get to know people. You start to figure out, oh, how do you do this? Okay, I got it. And like anything else in life. It's just, it's relationships. So there's that, there's that way. Uh, if you have a couple more uh, a little more as far as financial resources. You know what? You can pick up and you can call FTW Ranch in Texas and you can go down there and you can do their beginning hunting course. And guess what they also have on that property? Oh, animals you can hunt. Guess what? They're exotic. So you can do it any time of the year. Uh, yep. You got to fly down there. Uh, but guess what? They also have there a gunsmith, rifles, scopes, ammo, all of it. So you have a one stop shop where you go and you. Like, take a class, you get behind the rifle, you learn how it works with the scope, the scope combinations, you learn your capabilities and more importantly, your limitations with that chosen setup and you go on a hunt. Um, And then you're like, ah, I see that. And then you can start doing a little more research. Oh, where else can I go? What else can I do? But uh, a lot of times you can go, not necessarily into your backyard, but essentially your backyard. And uh, to figure out how that works, I think it's important to talk to people who have done it, who have spent time there, who kind of get the system because each place is, each state is different. So there's different, uh, you know, obviously zones and things you have to do depending on the animal and how you're going to do it, whether it's muzzleloader or rifle or uh, bow or whatever it might be. So I think a good first step, if you're not going to pick up and fly to FTW Ranch in Texas and get the full on experience right out of the gate, uh, is to head down, join that local 3D shooting archery course club, uh, join that local hunting club, get to know people, start asking questions, uh, get that bow set up. Cause you don't have to have that crazy expensive bow. Uh, you know, we didn't have those, <laughs> you know, certainly hundred years ago, people were getting it done and, uh, and they, we were, they weren't spending this amount on, uh, on these bows and these, uh, these different setups or whatever. So there is something out there that uh, is not as expensive. I'm not going to say it's not expensive, but it's not as expensive and everything relative. So everybody has a different perspective on what's expensive and what's not. So, um, but first step, yeah, go down there and talk to some of those people and be like, Hey, I really want to get into this. I don't know how to start. And uh, you know, most of the time they'd be more than happy to sell you a bow uh, and talk to you about the different options. And you can be like, well, that, uh, you know, I have 500 bucks to spend, I have 300 bucks to spend, um, I have a thousand bucks to spend, whatever. Hey, how would you do it? That's what I typically do. Like, if this was yours, how would you set it up? Or if you had $350, like what would you do with it? If you wanted to get started in this thing. And typically somebody in a boat shop is gonna be like, Oh, this is what I do if I had that. Um, so it's a very long way to go about it, but it's not an easy question just say, go to www.honey.com and then just follow the instructions. Like, I don't, think, I don't think so. It's, uh, it's more personal than that. Uh, if that makes sense. And I'd be curious what you, you probably get that question a lot as well. I'm curious what you say.
1: I mean, it's just about word for word. What I say is I, you know, find a local shop, find a local conservation organization. That's having an event. Typically the same type of thing. Yeah. You know, it's, and uh, again, yeah, you can't always afford. Sometimes the local shop might be a little bit more expensive than a big box or Amazon or something, if they're having a sale. And, but if you can, you know, go small, do what works within your budget as far as picking up gear, but make an effort to build community because that's how. I mean, shoot, I started a damn podcast to build my community. Like, I, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't know anyone. And all those resources,
0: there's all those resources as well. There's your podcast. There's other podcasts. There's different people that uh, that you can follow and kind of get a tidbit here or there. Um, main point is not to get discouraged and to know, just like like you said, go to that local local shop. I mean, that's that's really. I tell people too. And then also, yeah, join that local conservation group or hunting club and, and you're going mm-hmm. you to develop those relationships and, and, uh, you're going know, to build, uh, build a base of knowledge and then you go out and then guess what? You're going to learn.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's funny you bring up FTW ranch because I just had Tim Fallon. Oh, on. Yeah.
0: Oh, he's awesome. I was just uh, even a little the other day. He's so That's great.
1: Right. Yeah. And he, I'm, I will be, uh, I will be down there for their class, uh, in February. Oh, um, nice. What are you doing? Uh, I I do not know. He he signed me up, and I'm all like, right. all right. I am. I blocked off. I blocked off the the four or five days, whatever, for that weekend. And
0: nice, nice. A buddy of mine, a couple of buddies of mine, helped put together the, uh, the 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 course of instruction down there. Former a former sniper instructor of mine, and then a former buddy of mine who I went into Ramadi with in 2000 and 2006 as snipers. Uh, they are instructors out there now. So uh, great, great group of guys out there. I mean, I learned so much. I can only imagine how much better of a sniper I would have been had I had that knowledge. And of course, you know, they're taking knowledge now the now that 20 years military and then all the different setups they see hunting-wise The people come through there with. They see every single scope, rifle, scope ring, ammo combination you can possibly imagine. And then they have everything there to fix something that's not working. So it's such a cool place, such a cool experience, great little bar in there. And the, it's just, it's awesome. I took my wife there for, uh, for Mother's Day, which might not be the best move. Um, <laughs> when I came up with it, I talked to Tim and I'm like, hey, you know, is there, do you have space in the, in the uh, class that runs through Mother's Day? And he's like, we tried that once. It didn't work. I'm like, what? It's a fantastic idea. Sign me up. Yes. Me, my wife, my daughter, we're coming out. It's going to be awesome. And then when I told my wife, she wasn't as excited as I, I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, but we went out there was it last year, the year before I guess, before COVID. So twenty, uh, twenty nineteen, um, and we, it was awesome. But maybe Mother's Day or a wedding anniversary or your wife's birthday is not the best time to, to do that, maybe do something else for that and then go. So anyway, <laughs> I, it, was, it was awesome. We had a great time. We'll never forget that mother's day. I'll tell you that. Um, so yeah, it was just us in the class and, uh, and one buddy who was going to bring his daughter and then, uh, she couldn't come at the last second. So, uh, <laughs> but FCW is awesome out there. Tim and that crew are just top notch. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, the range cards that you get, um, the amount of knowledge that you'll leave there with is, uh, I learned something every time I go there. And then I also got to do, for that Mozambique trip, I went out there to get uh, tuned up on a double rifle because I wanted to do my uh, Cape Buffalo hunt uh, the same way somebody would have done it 100 years ago. Uh, so I didn't want an optic. Uh, I just wanted so I a, a 500 416 Nitro Express from pre Um what I used when I trained. I didn't have that rifle, so I used um, a Heim that they had out there. And it was just so cool how they, how, yeah, they train you up on that uh that weapon system and now they have uh they have these charging animals that come in or whatever and you're reloading and boom and then you know when I got over there to do the hunt it was uh I mean it was incredible I could not have written how that thing went down better uh, and all of that training
1: came into play and it was really cool awesome well folks wanted to uh follow along with you and James Reese and the Hastings clan and 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 all of the above where can they where can they find you yeah, so I have a
0: website, uh, officialjackcar.com. And if people are interested in a little more background on some of the, the rifles that I used in SEAL teams or the, the knives in the books or whatever else, there's a blog, you can scroll through that blog and uh, a deep dive. Some things I can't talk about in the book because it just it would only be interesting to a certain segment. <laughs> uh, that's a uh, deep dive into those on the blog. Uh, I also have a reading list. I get a lot of questions about uh, recommended reading lists. And so I pick six from my reading list and I talk about six of them a month and those are on there in the blog section as well so people can explore that and then I'm official Jack Car, or no I'm Jack Car USA on Instagram Facebook and Twitter but I'm most active on on Instagram because uh three platforms is just too much for for one person so I think my Facebook just uh, I don't even know how to log in there, but it uh, reposts from Instagram. <laughs> Instagram is where I'm there. I'm posting. I'm engaging. I'm trying to uh, to thank everybody. or At least hit that little heart uh, as a thank you to people who reach out uh, because I, you know, what made these things a success is it's the hunter it's the tactical shooter it's the veteran it's the reader it's that word of mouth that did it because i didn't go on rogan until after the third novel was out after it had already made the new york times list because pratt didn't mention the the um uh, the series until after that third book until after it made the new york times list didn't go on tucker carlson until after that so it was all grassroots it was all word of mouth it was all these different people whether they have one follower or two or five or 10 million. Um, it was and everything in between. It was all these different companies that I had personal relationships with over the last 25 years, just by one being part of this industry and being, uh, wanting my guys to go downrange with the best possible gear that we could, uh, and developing those relationships just naturally over time. Uh, like they wanted to help launch these novels and like let their, uh, people that, that that shoot their rifles or their pistols or use their knives know about it, uh, you know, especially if it was in the novel, which a lot of times uh, they are. So, um, so that was, that was pretty cool. So I try to thank everybody. It's getting harder, harder and harder, but I still try at the end of the day just to, to you know, to go through and, and thank people because I sincerely appreciate uh, people taking a risk on me as a new author uh, and recommending me to a friend. Cause when you do that, you risk something as well. if The person doesn't like it. So, um, so I sincerely appreciate everybody doing that. And uh, it means a lot to me.
1: And it's, it as a as a fan, coming from a fan perspective, it's it's very appreciated on our, on our ends. Even just when you get, you know, when you leave a comment and you get that like, it's definitely appreciated. I know uh and it's also a lot of fun going to your Instagram and uh, you know, because right now we don't we don't have the series yet, but uh you said you occasionally get those little visuals uh that that somewhat recreate moments from the book. And I think my favorite was uh the idea you posted an image and it's kind of a, the recreation of that, that prologue, that first scene in the, in the very first book. And people, you know, people can go figure that out and find it themselves, but uh, awesome. it's, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun seeing those pop up and be like, that looks like something I've read about. before.
0: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I try to, you know, add value. So before I post anything or, you know, I try to think, Hey, if, if someone is trusting me with their time, uh, am I, I guess being a good custodian of that trust. Um, and so before I post anything, I'm really just like doing a repost of a meme. I typically don't do that sort of thing. Um, Cause I think it, it, people's time is their most valuable commodity and they've trusted me with it. Even if it's just for a quick swipe, even if it's just for a second or two um, that's still two seconds of their life. Um, so I try to be, I try to be thoughtful in that respect and, post things that uh, that I put thought into and that I think add value uh, to someone's life that are, is is following me so um, so I do take the time to, to think those through uh, and and do that because that's really where I get to engage today particularly now that there's you know book signings aren't what they were yeah of course with covid and all the rest of it but I was thanking everybody before well before that and trying to engage with everybody well before that um, so um, yeah sincerely appreciate it
1: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we got to make this happen. Looking yeah. forward to finding out uh, what happens in the next book and, and looking forward to seeing the series as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. and I love what you're doing. Uh, this is super cool. So let me know when it comes out and uh, yeah, I'll post about it, do all that stuff. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on and, and uh, thanks for being such a, a great voice for, for all of
1: us out there. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Big thank you to Jack for taking time out of his busy writing schedule to hop on the line with me. Make sure to keep an eye out for The Devil's Hand, the next book in the Terminal List series. Find out what happens to James Reese. And also keep an eye out on Amazon for the Terminal List series. I'm super excited to see that come out. But y'all, that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to
0: thewildinitiative.com. To get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts,
2: other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more.